The, the question was about our experience of the outward reality and inward reality being comprised of the six senses. Is there something else? The Buddha gave a very short discourse which he called the All. And he described the All, the totality of reality, <laughs> Uh, in six short phrases. He said the eye, visible objects in the knowing, ear, sound, the knowing, nose, smell in the knowing, tongue, taste, body, sensations in the knowing, mind, mind objects in the knowing. And this is the all. And so whether it's directed inwardly or outwardly, it is the same. Next week I'm hoping to talk about that which has been called the unconditioned. Like these, this, these six things, they all are about conditioned reality. And then there's the experience of what is unconditioned. So that's for next week. <laughs> I have to figure it out. <laughs> The question was about the impermanent nature of emptiness or nothingness. What do you mean exactly by I mean, nothingness? If I understand your question correctly, uh, sometimes there's an experience in practice uh, where really the mind is quiet, so there's no particular mind objects arising, and the body is either very refined or imperceptible, and so there's no awareness of body phenomena. But there's still knowing going on. Right? There's still awareness there. And so the note in that situation could be simply knowing, 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 even if it's the knowing of nothing. That knowing is a process also. Right? And so the impermanence could be understood or could be seen, experienced as a characteristic of the knowing itself. But it takes a very refined awareness to see that, very, or very refined mindfulness to see the impermanence of consciousness. Usually, and I'm sure this is probably your experience as well, those times of awareness of nothing, you, know, you, could, call it, you could call it of emptiness or space, something like that. Um, a couple of things. You might want to just really settle into the note and noticing of the knowing right? and be open to the possibility of some very subtle experiences going on. They might be subtle energy vibrations in the body that are very smooth right? and so almost imperceptible. It might be awareness of some mind state but not a thought or a heavy emotion. It might be, for example, the awareness of peace, the awareness of calm. Right, of equanimity, of non-reactivity. So these are mind conditions also, but they're very, they're very still. They're mind factors of stillness. You know, so those could be noticed as well.
Keep in mind something which I've talked about before and will continue to, that the practice is not about certain experiences. It's about non-attachment. The freedom and what we're practicing is non-craving, non-attachment, non-fixation, non-identification. Those are all words for the same thing. So that's what's being practiced, not having a particular experience, although, as you well know, <coughs> many different experiences keep coming and going, some pleasant, some unpleasant, some neutral. And just a furtherance of that experience you mentioned, one of the things that can happen in practice, and especially in a state like you described, where there's nothing much happening, right? and there is this feeling of maybe empty-like space, uh, it may be a good opportunity to experience what neutral feeling is. It's not pleasant. There's nothing pleasant there, and there's nothing unpleasant. And one of the things that's mentioned in the text and is borne out in my experience is that in a certain way we begin to experience neutral feeling as being, I'm not sure the right word here, as being a happier or more pleasurable state than pleasant feeling. Precisely because it's more subtle, it's more refined. You know, we're generally so addicted to pleasant feeling uh, that often we just pass over things of neutral feeling, but actually there's a more subtle or more refined pleasure in that. And that also is not something to be clung to. All of them. The question was about the three characteristics of experience of anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, suffering, and selflessness. And it's understandable how everything could be said to be impermanent, but it's not quite clear how the truth of dukkha applies to non-sentient things. Like what's, what's the suffering of a stone? Uh, there are two sides to the question, really, as I understand it. Um, one is that we need to take a very uh, expansive or broad view of what dukkha means. Uh, one of the translations is uh, suffering, unsatisfactoriness, but another one which often um, we don't necessarily tune into but, but seems to be very true is the meaning of uh, dukkha as unreliable. And it's unreliable precisely in the sense that it's impermanent. Right? That it can't be depended on for fulfillment, for completion. 
In terms of the experience of dukkha, I think that really refers to uh, sentient beings. You know, so I don't think that the Buddha would say that the stone experiences in itself dukkha. Because there's no consciousness there. So the, the experience of dukkha refers to the experience that sentient beings have of all conditioned things. Sometimes it means painful, sometimes it means the unreliability of impermanence, sometimes it means that third kind of dukkha, we've talked about the sankara dukkha, just the effort needed to keep things from, to keep things together. Is that? No. <laughs> what's what's well, the? I, I guess I'm just hung up on the all conditioned things, the, the categorical um, quality of the statement. Um, is he saying all conditioned things in terms of our experience of all conditioned things? I can understand, as you say, the unreliability mm-hmm. of objects as. Uh, something that would give us satisfaction. But that doesn't seem to me to be what he's saying. He's making a categorical statement about the nature of conditioning. Well, I would say the statement is about the experience of conditioned things. I mean, that certainly makes sense, you know, for us what a stone experiences in itself, hard to say. (laughs) Hard for me to say, anyway. With reference to that, with reference to understanding of the unconditioned, with reference to many things, there is a broad range of opinions. You know, and I mean that not facetiously, but actually from, and this is this is one of the great. I think riches of the Dharma, the Buddhist teaching, that in the very many traditions and even within a single tradition, there are many viewpoints and many descriptions of how things are. And so, for example, that's a very sort of poetic and maybe literally true statement about the karmic destiny of stones, you know, and that it's very slow. Another perspective within the Buddha Dharma would be that there is no consciousness in stones, and so it's not subject to the law of karma, that there are other laws, there are other natural laws at work, but karma is not one of them in that case. Something I think I've mentioned before, and what I found to be a tremendous help Tremendous help in sort of wending one's way, you know, through the drama of samsara, um, is to really distinguish in myself between what's an opinion that I have from some source or other and what I actually know in my experience. And it's a great refuge to realize how much we don't know. It really is. I mean, that there's a wide range of things that we could have opinions about based on a lot of different things, including scriptures and texts and wise teachers and... uh, 
And I think there's nothing wrong with having various opinions. I think there's a danger when we mistake the opinion for something that we actually know from experience. And I found it a tremendous inner release. To, to take refuge in not knowing. Because it just opens everything up. You know, it opens up many possibilities. Uh, so I highly recommend it. <laughs> I do. You know, I, it, it took me a surprisingly long time to come to that conclusion. <laughs> I mean, it seems so obvious. But, you know, we can get so immersed in our belief systems from various, as I say, it's from various sources. Um, Attachment to belief, attachment to viewpoint is one of the great attachments that we have. Do one part at a time. You asked both together. <laughs> you know the story of the dullard, he tried to learn this four-line verse, and he got the first one, and then the second line pushed out the first one. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's me. Um, With respect to the first question, uh, I think the most appropriate thing to say in this context is that the teachings, like everything else, are subject to the laws of conditioning and impermanence um, and it's very obvious in the examples you gave. The question was about, you know, why the, in the Buddhist time he was a very successful teacher, had a lot of disciples, contrasting that with Christ, who at the time of his death uh, was in very difficult circumstances, but that now in India there's not much Buddhist practice going on, and as was said, maybe about the same as... Um, Christianity practiced in Israel. You could trace back, you know, a lot of the historical conditions of of how that happened, uh, and there are, you know, there are there are histories of Buddhism and I'm sure of Christianity as well. Um, a lot of it has to do with politics. 
you know, the various invasions that happened. Uh, there are a lot of historical reasons, but I think the important thing is really to understand that it is an impermanent phenomena. You know, the teachings, the practice of the teachings themselves, you know, are born, flourish for some time, you know, and pass away. You're probably familiar with these. There is an ancient prophecy uh, that's found both in the Burmese tradition and the Tibetan tradition that 2,500 years after the death of the Buddha, there would be a flourishing, a renaissance of the teachings after having declined for many centuries. That there would be this flourishing and then a decline and a disappearance. So we happen to have hit it just right. <laughs> you know, we have. I mean, this is... <laughs> because, you know, when you look at the conditions in the world, just, just as you pointed out, you know, one time it was totally flourishing in India and other places, and now it's not to be found, you know, hardly. You know, and it's going to be the same thing you know, in this context as well, but we happen to be in a time where the teachings are really being spread you know, and practiced, and it's a very rare, it's really a rare happening. Uh, it inspires me a lot in terms of actually taking advantage of this time, and especially in the West, it's as if the Dharma is pouring into the West from every tradition. It's quite amazing. You know, in Asia, there has never been this kind of cross-fertilization. You know, Zen and different Chinese traditions and Tibetan and Theravada. You know, and it's all coming together and it's cross-fertilizing and it's making it very vibrant, very alive. Uh, so it is really historically an amazingly special time for the practice of the Dharma. And it's not going to last, because it is dependent on conditions, and conditions change, and they will. You know, so I think it really is the fruit of our parami that somehow we're born at this time and we connect, you know, and have this chance to practice. In terms of the second question, you know, who is Mahasi Sayadaw and what's the Theravada tradition and what are we practicing? Was that... <laughs> For a long time, let me back up. Um, first, I'm not an expert in the in the history of Buddhism, so it's, what I'm going to say is just kind of a sketch of it. There are books which go into a lot of detail about this, but after the Buddha's death, especially some hundred years afterwards. Uh, and at different times, it's, there were various splits, you know, in the Sangha, um, with different with different factions emphasizing different sides of the teaching, and as usually happens, getting into you know some conflict with with each other. Um, the Theravada tradition is the modern day. Descendant of one of the groups, you know, of monks uh, from the t from the time of the Buddha and onward, and in the various splits, uh, what is now called Theravada, um, sort of held what is considered to be the earliest or the original teachings of the Buddha, and it's based, as you know, on the Pali Canon which is all the, all the Buddhist texts, which were passed down first orally and then written in the Pali language. And I think from all sides and from all accounts, these are taken to be the oldest. Um, we could say the original teachings. So the Theravada tradition today is the, is the descendant of that line, you know, holding the, uh, the Pali canon as its reference. For a long time, the practice of the teachings 
the, especially the meditative practice, was limited to monasteries. Um, for the most part, what was taught to lay people were teachings of sila, of dana, of morality, of generosity, of living well, of metta. For the most part, the meditation practices leading to enlightenment were reserved for people uh, ordained, people, nuns and monks. Again, it's not, this is not exclusively, but for the most part. Mahasi Sayada was a monk in Burma who lived in the center. He died, I don't know, maybe five years ago or something like that. Uh, he was somebody who, as is often done in Burma, was ordained as a small boy you know, and spent his life uh, as a monk. He was unusual in a few respects. One, he combined, um, he combined the yogi life with the scholarly life. So he was a great meditator, he was a great yogi, as well as a great scholar. And his many, there are many books, many of which are translated in English. Uh, and they're wonderful, deep, profound expositions of the Dharma. And what makes them so uh, powerful is that they both come from the textual sources but also come out of his own experience. And so they're very much based on meditative experience. What he did, which was quite unusual, was to open the practice up to lay people. You know, and in Burma. And by the time he died, there were hundreds of branch monasteries you know, where lay people could come and did come in the hundreds of thousands or millions, like large, large numbers of people actually doing the practice that we're doing. Uh, so that was quite a new development historically. And as we can see, we're, we're the beneficiaries of that in some very real way. Um, in terms of whether what we're practicing is the real thing, going back to the Buddha, or something Mahasi Sayadaw dreamt up, the original teachings can be traced back to the Satipatthana Sutta, which we've made reference to, the four foundations of mindfulness. When you read that sutta carefully, you see that there are many, many different techniques contained within the sutta. It's not limited to one technique. And so, for example, I don't have the numbers exactly right, but you know, there are nine or ten ways of practicing mindfulness of the body. There are so many ways of practicing mindfulness of feelings, so many different ways of practicing mindfulness of the mind and mind states. So all the various techniques of Vipassana are all rooted in the foundations of mindfulness and they're all for the purpose of cultivating mindfulness. Because when mindfulness is cultivated, all the other factors of enlightenment come along. And so it is very much rooted in the original teachings and its techniques that were refined and taught by Mahasi Saira. And also know that we have definitely... to say this. <laughs> uh, there's a unique imprint going on here. <laughs> and so even though the practice is the basic practice as he taught it, uh, you probably would find the interviews a little different with us than with Upandita, for example. <laughs> Theravada means, literally, it means the path of the elders. Tara means elders, and Vada is path.
question is about suicide and the teaching generally that it leads to bad rebirth, but isn't there the possibility of suicide motivated by compassion? Um, first, it's to keep in mind that what determines the karmic result is the motivation. So the motivation is really key. It can be a very subtle matter trying to determine what the motivation is or what the mix of motivations are. Um, There is a story from the suttas of a monk who was uh, very sick, you know, and in a lot of pain and dying. And he took his own life. And the other monks were very upset with this. Um, And they went to the Buddha. And here's where the story, there are a couple of different stories here of what was recounted. The story that I'm most frequently heard was that between the time, it said he took a knife to himself in some ways, between the time that he actually did that and the time that he died, he became an arhant. Because he was just watching, he was very mindful of the whole process and his mind was ripe and and so basically the Buddha said, don't worry about him, (laughs) he's okay. The other story was, that I seem to recall, was that he was actually in our hunt before uh, he did it. Um, I'm not sure about that one. I seem to recall that as being one element. Uh, so there, there definitely is the possibility right, of it not uh, creating a bad rebirth. It's generally not suggested because for most people there would probably be some feelings of aversion or fear or depression, some unwholesome mind state going on, and that wouldn't necessarily be, you know, a good motive for the action. Um, So it's not to say that it's impossible, but I think the reason it's discouraged is because very often or very easily, there could be an unwholesome mind state involved. You know, it, it's this question has has been brought up uh, at various times with different teachers in different traditions. And I've heard people ask really, you know, wonderful lamas about this and and Theravada teachers. And always the traditional answer is given, but then when pressed in certain situations, for example, if somebody's dying, in a process of dying, and um, perhaps losing their mind, you know, and there's the desire to go out with clarity, you know, what to do. And in those situations, there always seems to be a reiteration of the traditional teaching, but also some, you know, who knows. <laughs> so it's a, it's a delicate and subtle matter. Um, I don't think there's an easy answer to it. The motivation is essential, you know, and... My sense is that if we have the ability to really allow the natural process to happen, it probably is the best. I just wanted to follow up on that because I remember so vividly during the 
The question was about, you know, bringing to mind the example during the Vietnam War of the Buddhist monks immolating, setting themselves on fire for, as a protest against the war. Again, it really does come back to motivation and their mind state, and who knows what the consequences were, the karmic consequences. This is, this is a good example of don't know. question was is practiced in different traditions, in Zen and other Mahayana traditions, where there seems to be more devotional practices, both individual and communal. Um, and I was just wondering whether that's a part of this tradition or not. Um, within the Theravada tradition, there is a lot of devotional practice. And you experience it a lot in Asia and in the monasteries. You know, a, a lot of the monastic um, community is around different kinds of devotional practice and chanting. Um, the Mahasi tradition really emphasized the bare bones meditation. It's like the no-frill flight, you know, it's, <laughs> it's just sit and walk, 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 and you can do a little chanting at the end of the day. <laughs> but that's just, and so that's really what, because we, that's what we practiced and trained in, um, that's sort of what's conveyed in these courses. Other teachers, for example, when the Amavati monks come here to IMS to teach, it's quite different. You know, and there's much more devotional practice. So it's within the, it's within the larger tradition. Uh, it's just not a strong part of what we teach in these courses, in these retreats. But it does, I think, it can play a very important place in our spiritual uh, life. And it's also very individual. Some people have a strong devotional bent and others not. I think I think it's true that in some in some uh, spiritual traditions and settings, the community is a central role. Um, sometimes I think of Vipassana as being the on the anarchistic end of the spiritual spectrum. <laughs> You know, there's the whole range available, and sort of each each particular tradition or lineage has its own flavor. 
I mean, as you know, in Zen practice, we never get away with sitting in our rooms. <laughs> Just not that I, I was at one Zen session, and I forget what I was doing some yogi job in the kitchen or so, and it went into or just before one, the afternoon sitting, so I thought, well, I'll just sit in my room. They came and dragged me out <laughs> back to the hall, a few whacks. <laughs> yeah, and here, sitting in one's room is fine. And so it's just a different, different style. Do you have any practice questions? <laughs> the teachers say over and over again to uh, let the attention fall into the body or drop into the body. Can you say something about ways of, of doing that? Maybe a list of factors. <laughs> <laughs> the question was about how to let the attention rest in the awareness of the body. Um, There are a few very simple ways to do it. One is um, simply to be aware of sitting and touching, and maybe at times even using sitting and touching as a primary object right, instead of the breath. So, for example, sitting is simply the awareness of your body posture. So you're sitting, and you just feel yourself sitting there. It's nothing more than that. It's very simple. You just sit. You sit and you know you're sitting. You feel yourself sitting. It's almost like the outline of the posture. Although it's not a... And you don't have to make an image in the mind. And then alternate that with touch sensation. You know, maybe of the buttocks and the cushion. So just sitting, touching, sitting, touching. In the note of sitting, you could then open up and simply notice what appears. You know, and so as you're noting or noticing sitting, you might feel pressure or tension or tightness. Or in different parts, you're not necessarily zooming into it, but you're just sitting and open to what appears, what arises. So all of these are ways of just resting in the awareness of the body, being with the breath. When you're sitting and aware of yourself sitting and you begin to feel either the rise-fall or the in-and-out, and you let the mind simply be with the breath appearing, that's also dropping into the body. Sometimes people do a body scan. You know, just starting at the top of the head and moving the attention down through the body and then back up again. That's another way. And so, and one of the, one of the um, great benefits of practicing mindfulness of the body is that uh, it's always easily accessible. And even if we were simply to be aware just of our body postures, if that's all we did in the day, you sit and you know you're sitting. You stand and you know you're standing. You walk and you know you're walking. You're lying down, you know you're lying down. If you could maintain that awareness, that would be enough. It's a, very, it's a very powerful practice to stay open to, connected with, in the experience of the body. Because in that, everything happens. When you're sitting and you simply know you're sitting, that is, the mind is undistracted from that. You sit and you know you're sitting. Everything will be revealed. You'll be aware of different sensations coming and going. You'll be aware of different thoughts coming and going, of sounds coming and going. And that's the beauty and the simplicity of the practice. It really has to do with non-doing, of just settling back, using the body as the reference point, open to whatever appears. And there's the whole show which unfolds. One of, the, one of the things that Munindra, my first teacher, would say very often to me, and it was really quite a help, he said, if you sit and know you're sitting, the whole Dharma will be revealed. So whenever you get confused, 
you know, you don't know what you're doing, there are too many things going on, you know, I've been here <laughs> two and a half months and I still don't know what the practice is. Whenever thoughts come like that, just remind yourself, just sit and be aware that you're sitting. Or if you're walking, just walk and be aware that you're walking. You got that? <laughs> Right, thank you. <laughs> Question was where do Ajahn Buddhadasa and Ajahn Chah fit into the Mahasi tradition? It's really a, it's a different lineage, and Buddhadasa and Ajahn Chah are different lineages themselves. Um, Ajahn Chah is part of one of the great, uh, the great Thai forest tradition, and there are many. There have been many great. Dharma masters coming out, many of them descended from this one amazing teacher, Ajahn Mahabhu, who was like the grandfather of the forest tradition. He's the one, I've mentioned him before, he's the one who, he would work with his disciples by reading their minds and then announcing to the assembled audience <laughs> any wayward thoughts. <laughs> Uh, and there's a biography of him by one of his disciples who is now one of the great forest teachers, Ajahn Mahabua. Uh, after the course, if you have the opportunity, they have it at the study center. It's, it's the biography of Ajahn Mun. It's a wonderful book. And it's, uh, just amazing stories of all these devas coming down to get teachings and different kinds of you know, magical things happening, and tremendous uh, rigor in the practice. You know, he would send his disciples off to sit in the paths of tigers to overcome their fear. <laughs> so they live in Thailand. <laughs> so that's that's the uh, that it's, they're pretty separate. The question was about sitting, uh, thoughts come, there's a sense that there's some feelings connected with those thoughts. Yeah, but... Right, but then, then you can't find them when you go to see exactly where they are. Um, in these situations, is it something that the mind feels caught in or just part of a passing flow? Okay, so, so the thoughts are repetitive, or uh, are you aware of what the feeling is, even though you can't locate it? Okay, so you can name it. Yeah, I think that's fine. Um, you might look to see, sometimes if you don't feel it in the body, you might experience it as a... I mean, this is kind of a metaphor, a coloration of the mind, or just a, a mind energy that has a particular flavor. You know, so even if you're not feeling it in the body, notice just what the quality of the mind is. And you might have the reference point, you know, a point of distinction being a totally clear mind, like open space or like the sky. Is there something else that's coloring that? Is there something else that's there? You know, and it might be a haziness, it might be a slight feeling of contraction, 
there might be a kind of resistance in the mind, just something other than open awareness, clear open awareness. And that, that might give you a sense of what the emotion, or how the emotion is manifesting. Uh, but it's very subtle, because with mind states or moods like this, if you look too hard, you look right through it, because it's not a tangible object. And so what you need to do is really to settle way back and be very receptive, not active in the looking. Do you follow? And in that sometimes you get, you get a sense. The important thing, I think, is recognizing what it is. I think the clear recognition is key. If it's not, I mean, you can, you can open to the feelings in the body, see what's there, but if it's not apparent, um, it doesn't matter, never mind. Because it might not be. It might just be manifesting as a mind state. Okay, the, the question was about what emotions actually are. Are they something other than the combination of thoughts and sensations in the body? I think emotions are uh, a constellation of different experiences. So, for example, we take an emotion like love or like fear or like anger or joy... In each one of those, the constellation of experience may be a little different. So, for example, sometimes there may be thoughts in the mind about it, and sometimes not. Because you could have certain thoughts, perhaps which trigger an emotional state, which trigger fear, and then the thought may go away, but the feeling of fear is still there. Very often we do feel it in the body. There are certain bodily sensations associated with fear, but there is also a quality of mind that's associated with it, that may be connected with a thought, but it's not limited to a thought. There's a quality of mind, well, just as I was saying before, a, I don't know, a color tone or a flavor that distinguishes you know, one emotion from the next. I wouldn't so much be concerned about trying to pin it down theoretically, but really settle back and just experience it as it shows itself in your practice, in your life. So when it comes, each time it comes, rather than have a preconception of what should or shouldn't be there, just sit back, okay, how is it manifesting now? Do you feel bodily sensations connected with it or not? Is there, a, is there a mood tone or not? Are there thoughts or not? Um, you know, just one uh, thing that often comes up in practice, which I think is worth taking care with, sometimes people will feel certain bodily sensations which they have associated in the past with certain emotions, but not actually be feeling the emotion as these sensations come, and yet they will be interpreted as fear or anger or joy or whatever. Um, I think that's not particularly accurate at that time. You know, that the sensations may be there, look to see if there is an emotion connected with it or not, if there's a mind state or not. Because you could have certain 
you know, a certain bodily reaction and there actually not be fear present in the mind. Okay. The question was, or the comment was about sometimes when he has a place of burning or tightness in his back and he's just with the sensation, it seems in some way to trivialize it or not encompass it fully. When he opens up, for example, to the blowing of the wind, the mind gets very open and expansive and somehow then the sensation becomes part of a bigger landscape in which different emotions arise, perhaps like sadness or whatever. I think what's happening there, as you describe it, is that by opening to sound, instead of being locked into the sensation, you're actually relaxing the mind. You're making the mind more receptive, more open, and therefore you may be open to experiencing more things that are actually present, that you were locking out. And that's why we've been using or suggesting that you use sound a lot, because sometimes the mind can get very uh, contracted in its awareness of a sensation, particularly if it's unpleasant. Because we can be noting burning, 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 but it really not be mindfulness. It really be some form of aversion or resistance. Burning, burning, I hate it. <laughs> burning, burning, when is it going to leave? So, in that case, we're not actually being mindful, even though we're going through the routine. By opening to sound, in in that situation, it sometimes just relaxes the mind, so that we actually get more accepting of the burning, Not, not in resistance to it, and that could allow whatever else is there to reveal itself. I think the language doesn't matter so much as actually connecting with what's there. You don't want to you don't want to fall into the uh, you don't want to fall into imagination about your experience, and so you need to be careful about that. You want to get very open, very receptive, and also connecting with what's actually present, because it's easy to create stories as we all know. Okay, one last question. Did I say would there be a last question? (laughs) The question question was about karma and a comment that I made that good actions lead to pleasant experience and yet what brought her here to the retreat wasn't particularly pleasant 
experiences and that really the whole path, the spiritual path is not about having more pleasant experience. need to see the workings of karma on many, many levels, many dimensions. It's not a, it's not simple. how we relate to experience. Suppose we did something unskillful in the past and it's leading to some kind of painful result. But also in the, pa- in the past, there were seeds of wisdom being planted. When the unpleasant or when the unskillful karma ripens into an unpleasant situation of some kind, because of the previous karmic seeds of wisdom, then that unpleasantness actually becomes or the source, perhaps, of coming to the retreat or pursuing a spiritual path. And so uh, the karmic results are used in a skillful way. There was one, one teaching in one of the suttas where it says that, um, let's see if I get this right. That wisdom um, suffused with or supported by sila bears great fruit. And that sila, supported by or suffused with wisdom, bears great fruit. Okay. It's really the sila, or the, the kinds of actions we do, okay, which determine largely the pleasantness or unpleasantness of our circumstances. Okay. The wisdom component is another um, quality of mind um, that can transform or can um, can transform the fruit of unwholesome actions into a positive result. I think I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I mean, all of us are this, all of us are this uh, mixture of stream of conditions in, from the past of wholesome and unwholesome. Um, and the Buddha himself experience the fruit of previous unwholesome actions. You know, even after he was fully enlightened, even after he was the Buddha, there was one time where, um, you know, he had gone to a village for the rainy season and there was a famine in that area and that he and the order of monks, all they were given for food was horse feed. And he told the story of, yes, in some previous life he did this, this and this, and this was the karmic result. But his advice to the monks and nuns was to feed on rapture. So as you're going through the various karmic results (laughs) of your infinite past lives, uh, feed on rapture. (laughs) 
know, as you're undoubtedly well aware, we're kind of in the home stretch. Right? There's still, you know, a few weeks left uh, of the retreat. It is a really precious time. So please um, enjoy it and use it. Now, all the conditions, all the circumstances which make this possible in our lives, uh, they're very rare and they're very transitory. So having come together, um, honor that. You know, it's really a wonderful blessing. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.